0: So I know that CBD is very popular right now, but did you know that there are other cannabinoid profiles that we can use for not only ourselves, but our our dogs as well? Vetsyas has a new product out that is not only CBD, but it also uses CBG and CBN to act together to bring pretty strong results to the dogs. The new combination of the CBG, CBD and CBN is really good for dogs with significant anxiety, excessive inflammation, or dysfunction of the neurologic system. I have been using the new profiles for Tiva. Many of you know my 14-year-old dog Tiva, and I've seen some really awesome changes in her mobility since starting the CBD, CBG, CBN combination. So if you're interested in trying any CBD products or checking out the new profile, check out vetcs.com and you can use code disorderlydogs for 10% off your purchase hello everyone welcome back to another episode of disorderly dogs the podcast you all are going to have to forgive me i have a little bit of a cold um so that's why i sound stuffed up but i have a special guest with me today and i know that a lot of you already follow simon over on the instagram um but for those of you who don't already know him simon do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners
1: yeah cool uh so first of all thank you very much rachel for having me on um it's always a pleasure to be like-minded trainers so thank you very much for having me on um, uh, much big honor certainly all the way up from the UK as well. So for those that don't know me, my name is Simon Simon Moody, more commonly known as the Mucknut. Um, over on Instagram, so that is my business name. I'm a certified dog trainer and dog behaviourist. I specialise in reactivity, um, obviously using more modern day methods as we would call it these days. I know there's a million different labels, but essentially minimally aversive techniques, obviously focusing on how the dog is feeling, um, how the dog functions, um, as opposed to just literally forcing the dog to try and do a behaviour that we would particularly like. So, I like I say, I spend a lot of my time working with reactivity. I'm also a rescue consultant, if you can call it that. So I typically work with a lot of rescue organisations over in the UK, um, which is great, which is a lot of my background is from rescue as well as working with guide dogs, but mainly working with rescues, both in the UK, overseas, a little bit of dog sledding in there as well over in Norway. Um, But yeah, typically my time is spent one-to-one, reactivity cases, but yeah, rescue as well.
0: Amazing. Okay, so because I'm curious, and I'm sure the listeners are curious too, can you just give us a brief overview of like kind of how you got started on this training trajectory?
1: Yeah, so... um, bit of a weird one really so to begin with before i even got into dog trust i actually which is really cringy to say i actually used to do quite a bit of modeling um and basically got dropped (laughs) um so i had a bit of a sulk and basically then this is a long time ago now um i basically sort of decided you know what i what i enjoy what my passions and animals has always been that thing for me really um so i've always been very passionate about animals i've never really eaten animals for long Um, not that I'm judging anybody that does but typically animals have just been so much part of my life really so like a lot of people to begin with this is all going back maybe 10 years now first sort of experience with dogs Uh, rescue we used to my first encounter with dogs was actually through the guide dogs for the blind association as we call it in the UK so typically dogs that are trained to work with people who are visually impaired or blind and we used to foster the dogs. Um, and the way that it works certainly in the UK anyway would that you would look after the dogs sort of in the evening times and you'd have the dogs on the weekend so as kids we always wanted we always wanted a dog but quite rightly my mum said no because of the lifestyle we didn't have so we used to absolutely love that as kids but yeah typically in terms of training journey like I said just a second ago started out volunteering rescue certainly in rescue so just literally going and getting stuck in and having no idea what I was doing, like you would do to begin with, but just wanted to help. And the thought of stressed animals just really freaked me out. So just trying to help in any way possible. And then, yeah, really sort of, I can't even remember it properly now, but it sort of snowballed. I remember, yeah, like I say, spent time working with guide dogs, worked there for quite a few years, which was really interesting. Um I then moved off into rescue, so I ended up getting a job with a rescue organisation. Following on from that, I then went to work with Dogs Trust, who are a mass, well, the biggest animal welfare charity, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure they are in the UK, um, which was absolutely invaluable. Um, that was very much, I sort of worked my way up to more of a training behaviour position by the time I left, but that was some very, very invaluable years as you can imagine working with a lot a lot of dogs um stressed dogs reactive dogs dogs with you know all sorts of different you know behaviors disabilities that kind of thing so it was it was invaluable and my part of my role in there certainly towards the latter years was to as i say i worked with the training and behavior team um and there's quite a lot of centers about 22 centers in the UK and they all have their own individual training and behaviour team. And then they would have senior behaviourists and regional behaviourists, that kind of thing. So it was a very, really, really well-run operations with some of the best behaviourists and trainers in the UK. That's not myself, by the way, but um, certainly at a higher level. So it was, you know, absolutely amazing to work alongside these people. And the, just the structure of it is just it's just incredible, really. And they, they help so many other charities as well because they, they are a massive charity, but they do do a lot for the smaller rescues, taking on, you know, whether it's taking on dogs, whether it's helping train, whether it's helping that, that kind of thing. So it, to be honest with you, I, I really, that was invaluable for me. But yeah, a lot of it was assessing dogs coming in. So obviously as a rescue centre, you can't unfortunately take every single dog in you have, because if you've got 100 kennels with 100 reactive dogs or aggressive dogs, then you just completely become redundant as a rescue centre because you can't really rehome any. So there's that awkward conversation where obviously I'd be assessing a dog. To be honest with you, I could assess sometimes, you know, it could be anywhere from sort of 20 a day, um, sort of 45 minutes back-to-back appointments. So it was really intense and you're dealing with a lot of people, a lot of emotion, people crying, people kicking off at you, people trying to fight you. You know, if you're giving them the answer that they don't particularly want, then you've got a dog sat in front of you and you're heartbroken because you can't necessarily take the dog in. It it would just—it was a very, very challenging job. Um, And for that reason, obviously, working in rescue—not just dog trust, but other organisations—I've worked with as well. You know, I I say this carefully, but you know, I've been involved in putting a lot of dogs to sleep as well. Um, No, don't get me wrong; it's not just the case of they whip the shotgun out and start firing. It's a case of obviously, if you've worked with a dog that you can't rehome, the dog's really struggling with behaviour modification, you know, I, I don't agree with dogs sitting in kennels for, for years. I really don't I really don't agree with it unless it's sort of real individual circumstances where, you know, the dog is just simply not rehomeable or the dog's got, you know, just something where, again, normally nine times out of ten, I don't agree with it just because it just, just makes me feel really uncomfortable. So a point being is obviously spent a lot of time in that industry, watched a lot of dogs come in through no fault of their own and then watched a lot of dogs suffer. And unfortunately, I watched a lot of dogs be put to sleep. Um, I've certainly been very aware of the figures as well, particularly in the UK. You know, at one point, it was really, really high, like getting on for some weeks, you know, a thousand in a week. Like it's just ridiculous. Um, And again, a lot of the time is because coming on to why I do what I do is because of lack of education, a lack of education available, um, particularly for owners. So people going out and getting a dog, not realizing what's involved. And then naturally find themselves in a situation where they feel overwhelmed, or they can't be asked, or the dogs this and that and blah blah blah. And then, like you say, that's where dogs get handed over. So, massively, as you probably guess massively passionate about rescue. Um, and I'm not judging anybody who doesn't rescue. By the way, there's lots of other ways that you can help rescue, not necessarily adopting. Um, so, I'm most you know, I work with a lot of clients that, that haven't rescued, and like I say, there is zero judgment there whatsoever. I'm not against breeders for any stretch of the imagination. I think that's very much be a silly thing to say but obviously the reputable breeders definitely so um but yeah and then then since working for myself sorry I'm waffling on here. but in terms of then going to work for myself which is coming up to four years now um like a lot of dog trainers and behaviorists when you work on your own it's very scary to begin with <laughs> uh you've you've no real sort of anybody backing you up and I look back now at the early days and just cringe and laugh uh you know the cases you take on and how you do it and you're massively (laughs) undercharged, and you do all that you do everything wrong um but no typically through that time i was very like a lot of trainers gone through quite a lot of certifications i'll be honest with you i've i've been certified with quite a few organizations um some of which have lapsed for no 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 bad reason just like you know what it's like moving a business and classes and God knows else what you can be happy. Sometimes to keep you themselves. have to make
0: decisions to grow the business and not invest Absolutely, all of yeah. your income into oh. getting another certification, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was obsessed with them at one point. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted the alphabet after my name. But now to be honest with you, I'm just I'm just certified at IMDT. Um, which I'm really, really just always been fond of. To be honest with you, I've been accredited with other people and just been, you know, equally as happy, but really fond of them. It's obviously done with certi I've been And done lots of I've worked with quite lots of different trainers and shadowed a lot of trainers I've been that annoying person that just wants to work with everybody and shadow people and do you know what I mean That, that, that really real hunger to know and learn I'm still learning now like every in 20 years time I'll still be learning because as you know, it's, it's, you can't know everything. And if somebody's telling you, they know everything, they'd get a different trainer. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. Okay. So, right. So you really have like an all encompassing experience of working (laughs) with a lot of rescue and a lot of pet dog homes too. So I want to kind of start by talking a little bit about like maybe some of the differences in working with particularly reactive reactivity in like a shelter setting versus a pet home, because I know that in the shelter world, there's not always a human. You may be the only human working with that dog in that circumstance. So, can you just give the listeners just a little bit more of an idea of like how you were approaching some of the foundational work for reactive reactive dogs, knowing that like maybe you and volunteers were the only ones doing that. There wasn't actually like a pet guardian to support you in that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So obviously, reactivity being my thing and it's something that I've you know massively become Hugely passionate about, and it's something that I specialize in now, like you could self. So, 99% of my cases are reactivity work. Obviously, I work with other cases as well, and particularly in rescue. But, yeah, in, in terms of working with reactivity in a rescue setting, first of all, before we talk about home life, I mean, it's the first thing that I would look to identify would be I mean, there's there's a few things, but in terms of obviously giving the dog consistency and reliability, because obviously. What we'd normally look to do is like um, we'd have like a what's called like a trusted handler scheme. So where you might only pick certain members of staff, volunteers, you know, I typically like when I'm involved with rescues, I quite like to be involved in terms of how the training of the staff goes, the volunteers and sort of having different levelled volunteers in the sense of if you've got a real experience, Volunteer and you've got somebody who's been there two weeks, and obviously we'd look to try and build up, and you're not going to hand them a reactive dog straight away. So we'd have sort of a trusted handler scheme, depending on the rescue centre. Sometimes they are just tiny, so everybody has to get stuck in. Um, but even so, if that's the case, just real consistency. So in terms of strict sort of instructions, whether it's beyond the kennel, in terms of how to enter the kennel, how to leave the kennel, depending on the the the, the, the you know the dog themselves, and in terms of handling the reactivity. Again, it's every dog is different, obviously, but typically. Management being absolutely key. So obviously in a home environment can be slightly easier, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. But in a rescue environment, obviously you're in the same environment. It can be a very, very noisy environment, very stressful environment. Um, it, It can be really hard to manage particularly as well. So a lot of the time, yeah, we'd have strict handlers or so certain people handling them in terms of elements of training as well. Again, sometimes depending on the dog, it, training might not necessarily be that achievable because of that. Again, it depends on the setup of the rescue centre. Stress management would be the first thing that I would address. So if a dog firstly comes in, I wouldn't necessarily straight away get them introduced to a clicker. It might seem to be all meal times are now scattered you know, multiple exercises throughout the day, maybe once a day, depending on the stress level of the dog, obviously, but main, main priority would be stress management, obviously thinking so, of adrenaline. So I course, want to so.
0: interject really fast, because I think that this Sorry, is a really yeah. important detail. So all you beautiful listeners who are rescue volunteers, and you love the rescue dogs, and you really want to help, I want to just give you the grace to know that what Simon is saying here is that sometimes it's not about training. Right. Sometimes the dogs are not in a headspace where it's time to do behavior modification. Right. We kind of have to just help them feel safe and secure first and foremost, because I I often hear from wonderful people who volunteer for rescues or or work at rescues or shelters and they're feeling so overwhelmed because they want to do everything to help the animal. But know that we can't do behavior modification if the animal isn't in a place to learn or modify their behavior. 100%. 100%. And yeah,
1: yeah absolutely the the whole you know similarly when i work with the dog that first comes in sometimes i'll say just give the dog don't do anything for a week until i come back in don't worry about clicker don't worry about training don't worry about anything even like eye contact just literally get the dog out in a long line get the dog in, in a compound or in the field scatter the meals just you know manage the environment as much as you can whether it be a case you might even take the dog off site. you might use a, a work vehicle to t- like Funny off i'm working with the dog at the minute reactive lurcher very 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 reactive very stressy Been in and out of the center and we've just i said do not even do not walk him on site literally get him in the van it's literally like three minutes down the road it's a bit of a pain in the ass to be honest with you but three minutes down the road up out on the top on the long line, and he does one walk a day, but it's a good quality walk as opposed to say three on site walks. It just causes him so much stress. Can't respond to a clicker, can't respond to a marker, can't take food. We all know, obviously, particularly when dogs are stressed, appetite just because of the reduction in terms of from a neurobiology point of view, the dog is just not willing to eat. So yeah, as you quite rightly said, sometimes the dog is literally just not in a place to to be to be even physically be able to do that. In terms of obviously coming on to training, it, it, again, it just simply depends on the dog. I would be the other thing that I'm conscious of as well. And in sicklead rescue is sleep. Um, sleep being such a huge impact. I would even say, you know, it's just as important as food and water, the quality of the dog's sleep. Um, how, does the dog even, you know, get is does the dog get the opportunity to sleep? I would imagine not a lot of time in the day again in the evening when not dogs aren't supervised. So we just simply don't know. So as you quite rightly said, sometimes. It's, training isn't necessarily in the cars, And like you said, you can get some wonderful people that come and volunteer who are so desperate to help and be proactive. But I think sometimes, like you say, that is just simply not the case, certainly for the first few weeks anyway, of the dog arriving.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if we have the dog in a headspace where their needs are being met, they're, they're resting, they're in a, a place where they can engage in learning. Can you kind of share like maybe with some of the foundational steps. And I'm sure that there's a lot of parallels to like all reactivity work, but I think that there are certain exceptions that we're making for, for dogs in a shelter setting versus a dog in a pet home setting. So if our, our shelter dog is in a headspace to learn, where are you starting?
1: Yeah. So that being said, obviously, if we say, if we've got an ideal situation, I mean, typically I, I really like to, I really like to work with clickers like a lot of dog trainers obviously um, but particularly with reactivity just I tend to find personally that if you can introduce a clicker it's something new it's something fresh it's uh it's you know, it's it's a it's just a brand new connection in the dog's brain, particularly if we've not used one before. So the first thing I would look to do is try and introduce a clicker. Not around a trigger, not around a distraction. Obviously, just literally get that dog introduced to a clicker, whether it's a couple of I I with my clients, I you tend to send a lot of videos to my clients or rescue centers or whatever to to watch. But yeah, get that clicker introduced a couple of times a day, a couple of minutes a day. Um so if he's in a rescue setting, it might just be in the kennel before you take the dog out. It might just be literally let the dog approach you, click, drop food on the floor, move away from the dog, and just gently introduce that noise. Obviously, you can just click and feed if you want to. But yeah, that's typically how I would look to to begin with. Depending on the reactivity levels of the dog, I always, I don't know, it's a funny way of putting it, but I always like to teach the dog to look at, say, a distraction as opposed to a trigger. Now, I know they can be both. I know people are going to nitpick and say, yeah, but a distraction is, do you know what I mean? But I mean something that the dog doesn't find really triggering. So say, for example, like if you've got a dog-reactive dog, Teach the dog to look at people first because a lot of the time it just it just helps the dog understand and be able to practice, get a high level of reinforcement at a much lower level rather than sticking the dog in front of them straight away, particularly a dog in rescue who's going to be far more stressed than the dog in the home, usually anyway. So I tend to like to focus on practicing teaching the dog. I put it looking at distractions as opposed to looking at a trigger. So something that's really emotional. Um, for a dog to look at so like I say it might be another member of staff teaching the dog to look teaching for those that don't know a lot of people I'm sure with your listeners the you know teaching the dog to engage with something so look at something not bark not react we can then mark and reward that behavior but yeah typically like to start with a staff member a lot of the times with reactive dogs who are dog reactive typically when they see a person anyway they're a lot of the time anticipating you know a dog to be next to them anyway so I feel like it can be a nice starting point but particularly for a severely reactive dog, definitely, definitely would try this. So I wouldn't necessarily do it in the kennel. I would always, again, get the dog out, get the dog exercised, and then maybe in the afternoon, and then try. It just purely depends, obviously, on the severity of the dog. But that's how I would look to approach first, um, and then would look at you know trying to get a few days of success, teaching the dog to engage with something, maybe even to disengage as well. So for listeners, not sure what that is. It's essentially where the dog looks at something, distraction or trigger. And then when they're comfortable enough to be able to turn away and look back at you without barking or reacting or, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to avoid the dog from doing or lunging or we can then reward that behavior and say, "Brilliant, well done. But so so typically that's where I would start. I'd keep keep things really simplistic um, and then obviously look to progress the training from there, really.
0: Right. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more of like your experience as far as like what that looks like in real time as far as like, okay, so we accomplished that. We get some more training sessions under the dog's belt. Say someone comes and they really want to adopt the dog. How do you convey to the adopter without, I don't know, dissuading them from choosing that dog? (laughs) Like, And I'm sure that there's obviously no one right answer for this, but you know, I, what comes to mind is like the young adolescent dog who is presenting as super leash reactive, but in fact, it probably could be dog social in a certain setting. Like how do you help people understand like the truth about the dog's behavior, but also about like what you feel like the prognosis could be if they were living in a home and their needs were being met more than they can be in a shelter?
1: Yeah, totally. So firstly, I'd say with the rescues I work with, I'm really strict on what dogs can go up and can't go up for rehoming for that exact reason. Just so that we don't get people coming in halfway through, where we're like, we're not the dogs not necessarily quite ready. Because we basically what I'm saying is we really like to focus on certainly I do on rehabilitation. But having said that, I wouldn't keep a dog in longer than I felt that we needed to. We're not just going to send a dog home that is, you know, perfect and just more trying to get the dogs to at least to be able to disengage so that then when people come in, we can go, look, right, the dog's reactive, the dog's have this experience or not had this experience. You know, this is typically where the dog came in. We take a lot of video as well so that we can say, look, this is where we started. Um, this is what we're doing. This is the program that we're working with. Um, and then normally I would speak to Depending on who's coming in, I would a lot of the time the, the staff I work with. I'm really fortunate to work with some really, really amazing staff. To be honest with you, and I, I know everybody says that, but I'm being genuine. Like the people I work with are really, really. I'm really fortunate to work with hardworking people. Um, so a lot of the time, I, we we tend to make quite a lot, of, quite a lot of progress relatively quick. When I say quick, I'm talking like weeks to months. I'm not talking like days. Obviously, sometimes sometimes days, but um, but yeah, typically when people come up depending if it's quite a difficult dog, because I typically will get red flagged with the more tricky dogs. Then obviously I will have a sit down chat with certain people or quite low key, obviously, but very much to sort of make people fully aware of, you know, the dog that you're potentially taking on. But then it allows us, like I say, if the dog, before we put the dog up for rehoming, if we've had two or three weeks where we can at least hit the ground running and have a better understanding of the dog, have some sort of history, um, reinforcement history rather than training sessions in the bank, and obviously we can say, right, come and observe a training session. They can get a feel for that. But depending on the dog, if the dog's, you know, quite a challenging dog, then we would look to sort of book in three, essentially sort of three or four, you know, even more sometimes site visits so that they can firstly just see. I tend to do it on the first one so they can see what they're taking on. They can see that the dog is reactive, but then also like equally, they can see that the dog is able to certainly, you know, perform to a certain extent and they can see that the dog's making progress. Just so that we are brutally honest with people and say, To be honest with you, a lot of the time people come in and they're very much like, Yeah, it'll be fine. And a lot of the time I'm like, No, seriously, like this dog is potentially going to be really difficult. (laughs) So a lot of the time I tend to find people more people are so excited because it's a you know, there's a dog in front of them and taking the dog home. Uh, I certainly want to anyway. So, but yeah, it's it's perfectly honest. It's being brutally honest with people. Um, It's almost like a sales job in that sense where. Obviously, want to polish the dog up in the best way possible, but at the same time, you've got to be brutally honest because the last thing that we want is the dog boomeranging back into the centre because the dog will suffer massively. So I think it's just keeping expectations low. I always say this, so I would always advise you know one good quality walk a day, maximum two. You know, talking about decompression, so when the dog goes does go home, with, you know, the first sort of six to in six weeks to sort of three or four months, we can expect the dogs to be overly stressed. Um, so yeah, just really trying to set expectations, but also obviously giving them that opportunity where they can meet the dog properly, potentially get off the lead of the dog. If the dog's obviously people reactive, excuse me, obviously if the dog is people reactive, it's going to take a lot longer and they are the more tricky rehomes homes unfortunately.
0: Right. So can you share maybe like some of, I don't know, maybe the surprise that you experience when you're totally honest with adopters, right? About like, this is the reality of the dog, and how maybe some people aren't phased, maybe they are phased. I don't know. Tell us more about your experience.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's so hit and miss, honestly. Like, you can. The other day, I had somebody bring you back an 11 week old puppy for being a puppy, <laughs> um, and which which is just like really hard to get your head around. Um, and then I remember there was working with the dog. This is going back years now, maybe four years ago. And this couple came up, something like for four months they did in total, it was something ridiculous like 37 meets with this dog and this dog had like every issue under the sun um it was a very very complex complex dog that we worked with and yeah it was the craziest thing and like one of the one of my favorite favorite rehomes ever was back in 2016 a dog that i'd worked with and she came in she came in from the think from what we could tell some some form of not a nice guy basically putting it that way um like yeah like underworld like criminal you can get where i'm coming from she was a bull breed like and she came in and she was she was amazing she was very much when she first in like i love bull breeds like bull breeds i my think because i've just worked in rescue for so long um i've just i've just loved them for a long long time but i remember she she was a unbelievable dog she was absolutely i remember every morning i used to go in um to my kennel block so at the time i was i think i managed about 18 so anywhere up from from about 11 to 18 dogs a day it was a stressful job um and i remember going in and she used to cry every single morning until i'd gone in the kennel to give her to give her a cuddle she was like the cuddliest dog ever and bless her she was going off tangent a bit she used to go out with the volunteers. Everybody loved her. And then because naturally she had an issue around children, um, where she'd previously been, she had really poor experiences around kids. So she started to really sort of um, go downhill, words to effect, in terms of just got became a lot more stressed. She became dog reactive, people reactive, and it got to the stage where maybe two, I was one of two people that could get her out of the kennel. It got really bad. Um, and we were really concerned for obvious reasons. Because if I wasn't in and the other person wasn't in, then it just became very dangerous. So we but fortunately, this amazing couple who I'm still in contact with today, (laughs) they came up and they literally weren't bothered. It was really weird. They were just like, yeah, fine. Because she was trying to like rip their heads off to be, obviously she was muzzle trained and stuff like that, but she was just trying to kill them, And they couldn't get near her for, I don't know, at least 10 days Like she was just not comfortable. Obviously we didn't push her. She was just not comfortable, and you are like, Yeah, down, we'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> and they just, I don't know, they just they just kept coming up. I couldn't believe it. And we'd have days where it was more difficult. And I'm thinking, no, they're gonna pull out. And thank God that they didn't, um, because she's like one of the happiest dogs ever. And funnily enough, like you were saying before about sort of she's a great case study, really, that I use quite a lot. Um, because when she did go home, the reactivity massively reduced still have to be slightly wary of people um but to this you know she, very 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 became was very very dog friendly um might chase the odd cat <laughs> but um definitely massive change like unrecognizable um and like obviously that relates to stress but yeah i think it's just i think it's just people's perceptions i really do like some people come up and think a lot of time with rescue centers people come up for a day out they just want to come out bring the kids make a lot of noise bang on the glass and like that stresses me out massively (laughs) and then some people are very much like like those that couple there they just literally want to give everything and they just did i don't know they just don't even question it they're just like "Yep, we're here we'll do it it's not a problem (laughs) so i think a lot of it boils down to people's perceptions and what it is they're exactly looking for like, like yourself i'm sure you get asked so many times friends or friends of friends or people on instagram they'll tell you that they want a dog and they want a certain breed and for me it's very i always ask the question why why do you want a dog why what's your lifestyle like i'm really brutally honest because i've just seen so many dogs do you know what i mean like it's it's very much to people's attitudes um a lot of the time people's ego as well i think personally people people sometimes it doesn't mean they're bad people for once for one second but yeah i am brutally honest when people come to adopt a dog but But yeah, hopefully I've answered your question a little bit there. I know I'm waffling a little bit.
0: No, that totally answers my question. And that's actually a really really good bridge into something else I wanted to talk about. It's just that, like, I think that it's universal that our dog's behavior is related to how we feel about ourselves and how we feel like the world perceives us. And I think that that's really the crux of a lot of dogs ending up in the shelter. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, the beautiful human beings were able to work through that and then, you know, take the dog from the shelter. But I think that, you know, as a society, we do not make it easy for people to live with dogs that don't fit in the mold of the dog who's quiet and doesn't make a lot of noise and, you know, is seemingly quote unquote obedient. Um, and I guess I'm just curious to hear kind of like your perspective of like how you try and help your clients now outside of like some of the shelter work you're doing kind of deal with that. Right. Because I think that obviously we train dogs, but so much of our work is centered around people because oh, yeah. dogs <laughs> live with people. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, literally like a human trainer is that he's, he's more, I always say it's more about changing to speaking to a client, changing your behavior to change your dog's behavior. It's not, you know, it's not the other way around. It's very much about educating dog owners. The thing I always say with, with trying to, particularly with reactivity, but any, any training behavior, but mostly with reactivity, because that's typically what I tend to specialize in now like yourself. So it's very much about firstly, trying to get people away from certain language. So people, you know, obedience he said they're dominant stubborn these are really common words that people will label their dogs and people say oh like it's just like but language is so important because it then determines the attitude that you give your dog and your dog's training so if you're saying your dog's I don't know, nasty stubborn this and that dominant alpha whatever crap words people come up with it then dictate how you just, so a lot of the time it puts the dogs in a category then that they don't deserve help they don't deserve support if anything they don't deserve to be punished when in actual fact what i always have to remind people is that we've bred dogs for what i don't know i can't the maths you know domesticated dogs 10 to fifteen thousand years depending on whereabouts in the world we're, we're so we've bred dogs to do certain things so we've bred dogs to chase things bark at things herd things kill things sniff things out bring things back do all these, you know, all these crazy different things, and we bred them specifically a lot of the time for us to to benefit our lives. So we have bred them to do certain things. So naturally, dogs have natural desires and predatory, you know, instincts to to act on. So we we bring the dog into a home environment, usually based on the aesthetics of the dog, um, or basically what you know what we perceive to be, you know, something pleasing or an ego tickler or whatever. And then all of a sudden, we just say to the dog, yeah, we don't need to do any of that. We just want you to sit about, we'll cover you a cuddle, we'll give you a bit of food, we'll go for a bit of a walk and just keep quiet unless we you know, we say otherwise. So for me, I feel really frustrated and sorry for dogs a lot of the time because it must be so hard. It's hard to even get your head around. I always say to people, it's a weird example, but if somebody three or four times the size, you had a rope around your neck and dragged you around, you know, Wherever you live, dragging you up to people, dragging you up to, you know, scary environments and you didn't have a choice. Like that is like people, it's a weird thing to think about, but exactly that. <laughs> it's very strange. So I'm not saying dogs should be off the lead or anything like that all the time. Obviously not, but I'm just saying we have to put things into perspective. When you took a dog on from a rescue organization, the dog's been, you know, could have been there for years. The dog could have been passed from pillars of post and then on we want the dog to walk perfectly to heal we want the dog to come back when they're, you know off the lead excuse me or we just want the dog to not be reactive even though we perceive, and i always say to people we can as a human we can perceive the environment so much different to the dog so we can go oh it's only you know my mom or it's only you know my friend's dog We're, you know we know there's no real threat particularly with reactivity so we can first of all get quite frustrated so particularly clients is very much trying to you know, give them that perspective. Like, just calm down a minute. <laughs> Stop trying to ask for everything. And let's think about the dog. Let's think about the dog designed to do. So before we even potentially get onto training, so even before we, like Tim like we talked before about in the rescue, the first things that I would address a lot of the time, is stress so what's happening on a daily basis? Remembering stress is good and bad, so you can have good stresses and bad stresses that can still have a similar impact on the dog, but particularly bad stresses, obviously, the main one. Um, so seriously identifying that. Other thing, depending on the breed, as well, is obviously exercise is key. Good quality exercise doesn't mean you have to be running the dog into the ground, but can the dog at least get on a long line if the dog can't? Do you know what I mean? sorry, if, if the dog can't get off lead, can we at least get the dog on a long line and a muzzle potentially if needed from reactive dog or secure field, that kind of thing. And an outlet for, depending on the dog, obviously, but predatory uh, simulation. So that being anything from sniffing to chasing to dissecting, you know, a destruction box or a Kong or um, I think I've mentioned an outlet to chase or fetch or retrieve, you know, that kind of thing where the dog is naturally going to feel empowered before we even get onto talking about training so the first few weeks would be that exactly so usually involves scat feeding the meals in the garden or putting something in them, as we'd I'd call a destruction box um, so pizza box anything cardboard newspaper wrapping the dog's food up and that gives the dog a predatory simulation which basically just means that the predatory simulation is, is I think is about 12 different parts from anything from the dog searching stalking sniffing chasing catching killing biting eating <laughs> um obviously we're not gonna let the dogs do that in real time so that's why things like destruction boxes are brilliant playing with the ball scatter food in the garden that kind of things of so stuff we just mentioned there um so that's the first thing i'd look to do training wise similar to, like i said i'd introduce a clicker that kind of thing i'd, I'd start to get of information of how reactive is this dog what sort of threshold are we working with so how far away does the trigger need to be for us to be able to start to work with training a lot of the time as well as I said to you before, I like to work with distru- mild distractions rather than triggers. So a lot of the time, depending on the severity of the reactivity, we start indoors, we start in the house. So I've, I send clients a few quirky videos where it might be you standing in the doorway, just to just you might have your you know you might have your dog in one room, you might have your partner or a friend just standing in the doorway when the dog checks them, because obviously it's just a bit of a visual cue uh, for somebody standing in front of something, or certainly popping out somewhere. Obviously, be careful you're not going to startle your dog. The idea being then you can mark that behavior with clicking, you can reward the dog, the person goes away. And you can just gently build this to the point where the person's jumping in the air, uh, making a bit of noise, maybe running up and down the room. And you can just essentially teach the dog to look at something, not react, and you're going to get rewarded. And we tend to build from there, just because sometimes it can be, depending on the reactivity level, obviously, it can be a bit of a jump to go from, you know, outside, no dog, to Outside, oh my God, there's a dog there, or a person there, or a bike, or whatever the dog's reactive to. But if you've got a previous history, person for me, I know I find this works really well. If you've got quite a, you know, couple couple of weeks history of teaching the dog to look at something that doesn't cause them too much distress, because you can then build it up. You can have somebody outside the window. You can, do you know what I mean. You can really start to intensify it a little bit inside before you then make that big jump outside now don't get me wrong some dogs you could literally yourself turn up with food stooge dog in the distance and bang the dog's amazing but sometimes with those severe reactivity I would really I would really start indoors and work out
0: yeah and I love how you help change the guardian's literal story they're telling themselves about the dog right and and I feel like that's so much of my work as I'm I'm helping my clients understand with an empathetic and, you know, highly skilled view that your dog is not in fact being an ass, right? Like your dog is having a hard time. And I feel like that empathy, right. That like the guardian can see me showing for the dog, it becomes contagious. Right. And I find that the guardians start to be like, okay, well, if my trainer can see how brilliant my dog is, I could probably shift to that too. And I find that that's really where a lot of the most meaningful change comes from is literally modifying the human's thought process and language around their dog, right? Because it's like when we talk about the practical application of training, right? Like splitting, doing small steps, all of that is fine and good. But if the owner continues to internalize for themselves, my dog is trying to dominate me they're pushing boundaries. They're making me look like an idiot. Like we're never really going to make meaningful change because that's always going to be the going back to, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. Like you say, I just, a lot of the time we've, we've, you're trying to desensitize the client as well. So the client sees the dog and the lights, like proper, like tensing up. So a lot of the time you're actually trying to, as well as you say, change their attitude. I tend to find a lot of time you're trying to de-sense the owner as well as the dog.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. To the like, instead of, oh shit, to, oh my God, we have a training opportunity (laughs) here. Right. And like, I love so much when I'm talking to my clients and they're like, so we're out and we saw a trigger and we worked through it and it was awesome. Right. Because it's all connected. Right. And not that the guardian is to blame for the dog's reactivity, but we cannot separate them. Right. Like, they're behaving as a team. And if the handler is having a hard time, they're stressed, they're tensing up on the lead. That's only going to make things worse for the dog. Right. So like we call ourselves dog trainers, but we're also people coaches. I mean,
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Coaches, counselors, uh, motivational speakers, (laughs) all of that thing. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, exactly what it's like. It's, it's a, it's a 99% people job. It really, really is. Obviously the dogs come into it at some point, but it's, it's so like some of the best trainers I've ever seen are shit at training people. So the dogs, their dog is like amazing, but they don't have necessarily a lot of clients or they don't really do anything with it. Do you know what I mean? Because they just not make them bad people. But again, sometimes it's, you have, you have to physically be good with working with people, motivating people, critiquing people in a really professional and obviously it was you know in an appropriate way you can't say you know you shit you need to stop but obviously you know it's yeah it's 100% work it's it's not everybody says that everyone's out as soon as you say it like if you meet new people they go oh I love your job I love working with dogs I'm like it's really not that much about working with dogs once you you know obviously there's that it obviously is about dogs but yeah no you're quite right it's so much orientated around people
0: Right. Okay. So I just have one last question. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. So I know that, particularly in the rescue world in the US, there's a lot of demand for instant results. And, and because of that, a lot of animals in rescue, particularly dogs, are experiencing a pretty high level of punishment, right? Choke change, pinch collars, um, because the rescues feel like they have to produce results. Can you share a little bit more with the listeners why you choose not to train that way?
1: This is a big question. Um, <laughs> this is something that it's a big, big fallout within the dog training world. <laughs> Unfortunately, like I say, a lot of the time, there is so much miss. There's so much misinformation out there. There's so much conflicting information that we see on TV. We see on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, which is the worst for it as well, I tend to find. Not that I spend a lot of time on there, but some of the stuff I get sent, it's just... And the the, the thing is, it's very... Again, it, it's all to do with people's attitudes. So it's so much about, again, people's egos, wanting things quickly, wanting things for them, wanting the dog to make them look good, wanting to make their lives look easier, uh, sorry, feel easier Um, more manageable so a lot of the time it's with quick and instant and whatever people market it as it's so much about the human it's so so much it is surrounded the fact that it's about their lifestyle it's about how they look how they feel so first of all like i say it's just completely missing the point so a lot of the time people will say you know what we see in telly or dog's been fixed or instant results like you say or you know, quick turnaround, whatever, it's it, it's hard to even know where to begin because if if something's happening that fast, now don't get me wrong, reward-based training, force-free training, whatever you want to call it, you can get quick results. Um, but it just depends on what you call quick. So, like, if you're working with reactivity, then, you know, you, you might see results within a week, two weeks, probably rare, but you might, generally might see. So that, to me, is quite quick. It depends, obviously depends on the dog, depends on the person's attitude. But in terms of instant results, obviously, like the classic, I'll turn up to your house for two hours and we'll work through reactivity and it'll be sorted or resource guarding or separation anxiety or whatever. The the, the main ingredient of that is just suppression. So all you're doing is you're just giving the dog, if somebody's going to come down and say, right, I'm going to get rid of reactivity, I'm going to get rid of separation anxiety or resource issues, in today i'll guarantee it the guaranteed results thing drives me insane because that basically says to me you're just going to kick the shit out the dog or scare the crap out of the dog as much as you physically have to in order to make that guarantee to the client so again completely nothing to do with the dog all about the human all about the ego um so yeah so in terms of obviously the quick and instant results it's heavily reliant on suppression so for those listening thinking what does that mean suppression is just where naturally, like I say, the the emotion that the dog is showing, the dog just starts to hide it because they understand that now if they do show it, they're going to get punished even further. So it's very much, it's very much I always say, like turning a fire alarm off in a burning building so the the, the problem's still there, but the alert signal from the outside has stopped. So therefore, from an outside looking in, you might go, oh, you know, everything's cool. But in the meantime, the emotional need that, you know, the burning fire is still there and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow. And then the next thing, the windows are going to smash through and the whole building's on fire, and you've got a massive, massive behaviour issue now. Or, you know, you've got a dog with multiple health issues, um, because obviously you've got to remember that punishment isn't just something scary for the dog, which obviously it is, but in terms of we've got to think about the long-term health issues as well that it can cause. But it's just very frustrating because it, whilst you can't, you can't be positive all the time, Like you simply you can't, in terms of, and I accept that, and I do not profess to be an all positive but in terms of what the reason i'm saying that is because you've got to put a lead on the dog you potentially got to put a harness on the dog you potentially got to take the dog to the vet you got to put a dog in the car but obviously you can minimize the amount of verse that you're using you can work on descent so it's very much a case of you, you can't be positive all the time i completely understand that but the, this idea that you're going to use some excessive force to get instant results um usually to to like i say to validate themselves as trainers or owners when like I say we're just completely we're just completely missing the point it's the same as us I always say if somebody's you know if you wouldn't want to be treated like that then why why the hell are you letting somebody else treat your dog in that sense so in terms of it can it's just very very frustrating and it's essentially if somebody's offering heavy punishment for whatever the behavior reason is they're essentially just giving the dog I always say giving the dog something bigger to worry about so if they've got a trigger in front of them Dog, bike, person, kids, whatever it is, or separation or resource issues. And they're displaying that through usually as well. The thing that I always is, people, this is a conditioned response. It's an emotional response. So the dog has got little to no potential, you know, um, conscious thought involved. Um, or certainly it's a very, very impulsive, like I say, or emotionally conditioned response to something. So the dog, like I say, isn't necessarily in full control. The dog can't really help it. It happens. They're then getting punished for it. Again, you just create something that's even bigger than that actual thing that's in front of them. Practice that often enough. Yes, it can look like it's quick, but all that's happening now is the dog is shitting themselves because they're understanding that there's that thing I worry about. I've also now got to worry about whoever's got all the bill here because they're going to, like I say, make this situation even more unbearable. So I'm best just keeping quiet. Um, and again, even though when you look at it, you can pick up on it. You can see the dog's body language. You can see the dog's quite avoidant. You can see the dog's like I say, demeanor, the dog's panting half the time, the dog's quite sort of stops, start hesitant, whether that's lead work or whatever it is, but it, it just, find it really frustrating because it's just, in my opinion, lazy dog training, um, you know, it doesn't take, you know, it, anybody can start bullying a dog Um i appreciate things like prong collars and electric collars i've just i've never used um so i'm not going to sit here and say i know how to use them but i have no interest and i have no desire to want to use them um so i know there's a lot of people out there will say you don't know how to use it properly that's usually an argument where they say you don't know you don't know what you're doing you never use it and no absolutely i have no idea and i really don't want to know um to me it's not longer because in the process you're focusing on everything you're focusing on your dog's health your dog's mental health dog's long-term health again the the benefit sorry the potential damage that you can give your dog from giving them regular punishment obviously the stress that causes again you can then develop well, the dog can develop health conditions um in a variety of different forms you're going to shorten the dog's lifespan potentially as well if you're putting the dog in stress every single day same as us if the dog's stressed the dog's not going to sleep the dog's not going to recover like all these things that are just so important all because we want something quickly so for me I, there's just for me it's far too many cons and pros doesn't sit right anyway. I just physically would not be comfortable. Now don't get me wrong, there's days where, like we all do, you lose your shit with your dog where you're trigger stacked, you're pissed off. Um, and you might shout, yeah, you might shout, you might maybe, you know, handle the dog in a way you probably shouldn't have. But it's the difference between losing your shit as a human and using that as a train as an ongoing training tool. So we're all human, we're all gonna lose our shit and we're all like I say, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it just happens. But to use it as a training tool, definitely not. Just because, like I say, there's other methods that you can use, far more beneficial in the long run. Again, I always say to clients, you know, we're playing a 10 to 12 or maybe 15-year game. We don't have to get it done in the first week. Um, but, it's, it's again, it's just trying to educate people on the fact, that personally for me as well, like yourself, like I've done so much education over the years where, you know, understanding the, the neurobiology of the dog, the mammalian brain, so the, the one we've got. I, punishment doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of when you're trying to, from a behavior modification point of view, particularly when you're trying to reward a behavior that you would like, um, it just doesn't really fit in. Um, but understanding that, understanding the physical side of what the dog's designed to do, again, it, you want to you want to give the dog outlets to do certain things, not restrict them all the time. Um, but essentially, like I say, I've, I've, I've personally had a lot of good results over the years, where I've not had to use punishment, we've not had to use certain you know certain equipment um, or reverses techniques by any stretch um, so yeah in terms of the dogs that I've worked with you know working with all sorts of different aggression issues, a lot of the time I think people always always forget particularly with instant results and all that kind of stuff medical like that doesn't even come on the radar for me that's the first thing that usually comes out of my mouth which I'm sure it is with you when's the dog last in the vets, you know, what's the dog's health conditions, you know, whether it's how much the dog's sleeping, has the dog got any, you know, um, allergies we're not aware of, any sort of pain, discomfort. We don't even know if the dog's got a headache, do you know what I mean? So again, looking at it from the bigger picture, first and foremost, when people just come flying in, haven't got a clue about the dog, no history, don't know what the medical status of the dog is. And they just start, like I say, chucking a, you know, choke lead on the dog, prong collar, e-collar and just start advertising and marketing it as, yeah, well, it doesn't really hurt or this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, you're completely, completely missing the point. Um, but hand, holding hands up, yes, you can't be positive all the time, but it's a case of you man, you minimise how much adversity you put in the dog's life. Because obviously, if you're working with reactivity, comes a stage, you're going to have to put that dog in front of the trigger. But you would do it in a way where the dog can cope. You keep the session short, you go again, and you will see that progress. It's a lot of the time, like I said to you before, and obviously, a train over the years, you you constantly growing and adapting and trying to better yourself so obviously you can help clients and help dogs essentially and obviously I look back now and I think you know for the first few sessions I did I think god that was shit um but even so you know we still made progress but to now I think a lot of the time it's so much about breaking criteria down I do a lot of others I'm have you ever? I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people will have heard of this um but do you have you ever read the book portal and the clicker game the human
0: no I haven't
1: So it's P O R T L and it's essentially like a manual and it's all about human clicker training. Um, so you can order the pack, you can order the book. Um, and I do a lot of human clicker training with my clients and with the rescue organizations as well. So the pack itself, um, I'm not on commission, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) but the pack itself will come in with lots of different like items. So it might be, you know, anything from a little toy car to dice to cards to, you know, hair bubbles, and it, all sorts of weird and wonderful things and you'll have lots of different criteria so it might be to pick and put something up it might be to you know you might be to roll the dice and that number means to you know slide this thing one way or whatever it is or tie something together and obviously it's clicker training so it's very much about errorless learning and it's a once you once you i do it a lot with myself and like a few colleagues as well a bit nerdy but it's really good because it just massively opens your eyes to understand we are so confusing, like we are so confusing when we're training our dogs as well. Um, so, yeah, like I say, putting it in the human, in the, in the ball in the air court, really, and understanding that, you know, we sat down together, you're trying to teach me something. I have no idea what you're trying to teach me. I'm getting pissed off. You're getting pissed off. So it's exactly the same for our dogs. It's exactly the same. So breaking criteria down is so, so important. That's what I was saying before about starting indoors and working out. I tend to find that can have real, real impact on the, on the training, just the, the, the ability for the dog to be able to achieve, understand what the criteria is. Again, obviously reward based training as well. And again, you know, it's like anything you can, if you're giving the dog too much of a bigger task and yeah, obviously reward based training which can seemingly look like it's not working but it's not that it doesn't work it's just because of the environment's just not set up correctly but so much of the time people will go yeah I've tried positive reinforcement it doesn't work we've got another balance trainer in or a punishment based trainer and the dog stopped, to react, stopped reacting straight away but similar to you and I'm guessing I've had so many people come from aversive style trainers who have massively regretted it. And I'm not having a massive go at all of them because I'm not saying they're all bad people or anything like that at the end of the day. I know a lot of crossover trainers and I don't simply like to just sit here as a reward-based trainer slagging other trainers off because it just completely contradicts everything that I'm about. So I'm not sitting and saying these are all horrendous and horrible people and they need to be, you know, done. I'm not saying that for a minute, but in terms of, so yeah, often I find that clients will come to me and even potentially use another trainer and maybe regretted it because the dogs now the behavior's got worse, or the dogs, like I say, you know, becoming more aggressive. So a lot of the time I work with clients that have experienced that. And again, it's one of those things where again this idea of the quick fix. Yes, it can it, it can seemingly look like that, but again, bigger problems will arise. But and obviously that's sim- similar to like I was saying before, turn that fire alarm off in the burning building. But no, just to just to wrap it up, really. I mean, for me, it's something that I'm continuing. F- always continuing to improve you know understand develop my knowledge my skills to be able to obviously like we've just we've just talked about making sure that we with our training methods we're as minimal as possible when it comes to adversities rewarding behaviors we would like putting the dogs in environments where they can succeed focusing on predatory simu- stimulation sorry simulation in everyday lives And yeah, I think that's probably about it.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. Simon, this was such a good conversation. And to everyone who is listening, I know you all know that, you know, we're allowed to have shit days. But I wanted just to circle back to that. So all of you who have dogs and you are doing your best to train with positive reinforcement and you were trigger stacked and maybe you yanked on the leash, maybe you yelled at the dog it's okay. Give yourself some grace, right? Like we're all learning. We're all doing this together. The point is not to shame yourself, your behavior, but the goal is to learn and be better, right? So that the dog's behavior can improve and you can enjoy the dog more. So Simon, for everyone listening, can you tell them the best place to connect with you? If they wanted to learn more from you, if they wanted to work with you.
1: Oh yeah. So to be honest with you, a bit of a dinosaur at the minute, I'm just on Instagram. Um, so my Instagram is the MuckNut. And um, yeah, probably be relatively easy to find, but yeah, the Munnels the best place. Lots of content, lots of videos, so particularly surrounding reactivity and rescue. So, yeah, if people want to work with me, like I say at the minute, I can say obviously working one to one, but also do online coaching as well. And there's lots of plans coming out next year, which I won't divulge just too much to yet, just because there's, the, <laughs> there's a lot of things in planning, but particularly more online and memberships and that kind of thing um, to come next year. But for the time being, yeah, if people want to get in touch, that's the best place or you can alternatively go to my website which is themuttonut.com but yeah instagram is probably the best place
0: amazing okay and everyone will be sure to link those up in the show notes so it's easy for them to find you simon thank you so much for being an amazing human being and spending time with me today
1: thank you very much for having me on board
0: thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the show